Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. On Commons People this week, Boris Johnson's Cash for Cushions. The Prime Minister, Major Sleaze, sitting there. But how much difference will it make? And he goes on and on, Mr Speaker, about wallpaper when, as I've told him umpteen times now, I paid for it. And does the UK need to do more to help India? If we don't get a grip on this, this is no longer just a domestic crisis for India, this is a global emergency. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hi Paul. Rachel Wearmouth's here. Hi Arj. Hi Rachel and we're welcoming back the Conservative Chair of the Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, Tom Tugendhat. Hi Arj. Hi Tom, how are you? Yeah, pretty good, thanks. Good, I see your, uh, you've just had your, your very healthy lunch there. Absolutely, Yorkie bar and a Coke. What more can you want in life? Fantastic. <laughs> well, as Britain continues to enjoy the lifting of lockdown restrictions and relatively low levels of coronavirus cases, attention has turned to the dire situation in India where thousands are dying every day. The UK is already offering humanitarian assistance, shipping ventilators and oxygen equipment to the country where hundreds of thousands of new infections are being recorded on a daily basis. But the crisis could spark questions about the UK's foreign aid cuts, with Save the Children last week estimating that the Foreign Office's budget for COVID and global health will be 14% smaller over the next year. Elsewhere in Asia, the UK announced it would be deploying aircraft carrier HMS Queen Elizabeth to Japan and Korea on its maiden voyage, but it will avoid the sensitive Taiwan Strait. Uh, we'll discuss both these issues, but first let's hear Shadow Foreign Secretary Lisa Nandy urging the government to do more to help India. The ties between our countries are woven into the fabric of this nation, something that through my own heritage I am personally and acutely aware of. Many Britons of Indian origin will have gone to work today in our NHS, in our care homes, helping to carry us through this crisis while desperately worried about loved ones in India. We can and must do more. Paul, are we doing enough? Well, we've certainly done something this week. Foreign Office announced that the the, as Tuesday, um, a nine plane loads full of uh, equipment is coming from Britain to New Delhi. You know, we've got uh, oxygen concentrators. I think there's like 490 odd of those, 200 ventilators. These are all from surplus stocks in the UK. and going to make an immediate difference. Only today we saw that actually the Disasters Emergency Committee, which brings together 14 different charities in the UK, have announced that they're going to extend their appeal to cover India. So you've got the Indian Red Cross, Action Aid, from India, all doing stuff on the ground with PPE, disinfection kits, medical supplies, ambulances, and crucially, things like education, you know, helping kids get an education, supplies of food for those who have to isolate, all the basic stuff is being done by those charities. So charitably and in the government front, though, there is action. But I mean, Nigel Adams was asked in that, in that urgent question by uh, Lisa Nandy, you know, could what more could be done? I think he was pressed on whether or not we could send some of our surplus vaccines to India. And uh, the line at the moment seems to be, look, we're trying to build up our own booster jabs 
supply, as Matt Hancock said yesterday, with 60 million more from Pfizer. And the question is, you know, are we getting, I mean, we're quite rightly and naturally the, the government's first duty is to the British population. But the question is, have we already now got enough for a, even an autumn booster? And it sounds like we've got 200 million AstraZeneca and 100, got 100 million Pfizer and 100 million AstraZeneca lined up for the autumn. We won't need all of those. Um, it might make sense if just a chunk of those are sent off to India right now. And I think that that's a good question. The other question, of course, and the US is looking at this, sending its, its AstraZeneca to, to India, because in the US, AstraZeneca hasn't yet been even approved. Um, and that's partly because AstraZeneca hasn't applied for approval yet. Um, so they've got spares. And I think they're going to send 20 million from, from the US. But most of all, don't forget, India has, as we all know, its own vaccine production factories. And a lot of what the main effort is going to be, I think, from the US and other countries is sending them the necessary raw materials so they can make their own vaccine. So you don't have to directly send them your spare supplies of doses. You can help them actually make stuff for themselves. So I think that's where a lot of the focus will be. Tom, do you agree with Paul? Are we doing enough? Could we be sending vaccines or possibly, I think we potentially have some orders from vaccine, of vaccines from the Serum Institute vaccine plant in India. Should we be cancelling those? Look, we, I've spoken to my opposite number, P.P. Chowdhury, the chair of the uh, Indian External Affairs Committee in the Indian Parliament. And uh, I have to say, the first thing he said when I got on to a call with him the other day was thank you. Uh, he was extremely uh, effusive about the speed of Britain's reaction and very grateful for it. Uh, and uh, spoke very warmly about the living bridge between our peoples and echoing the words of Prime Minister Modi that many of us have heard before. And so I have to say, I think we are doing, uh, you know, we are acting. Is there more we can do? Of course there is. And there's more that the government is doing. I'm very pleased to hear it. And there's more that we can do as individuals. I don't know if you've heard, but the British Asian Trust has launched its uh, Oxygen for India appeal. You can go to Just Giving in the usual way, search for that, and you'll, you'll find it. Um, and there's a, they've, I think they've already raised over a million pounds in less than 24 hours. So it's quite clear that British people are responding with great generosity, completely unsurprisingly, to a country we know is a great friend. Are you concerned, though, Tom, that maybe not with this crisis, but at some point down the road after these cuts to the aid budget, there's going to be some kind of crisis and the question might arise, could the UK have done more and did the cuts have an impact here? Well, the question I'm asking myself today is, OK, this is happening in India now. Uh, in one of the variants, when are we going to see this? And God, I hope we don't. But when are we going to see this in Lagos? When are we going to see this in Nairobi, in one of the African mega cities? And what can we do in preparation to make sure that it doesn't uh, it doesn't take hold? You know, Nigeria matters enormously to the United Kingdom, not just because many Nigerians live in the UK and many Brits uh, live in Nigeria. And there's a that very strong link. But also, it's a hugely populous African state. I think about a third of the African population today is Nigerian, just to put it in context. And it's an extremely important economy uh, for the entire region. And culturally, as many people will know, Nigeria dominates uh, for, for, for many different areas of film and music and television and so on. So, you know, what happens in Nigeria really matters. And I think we need to be ready to support. Yeah, I mean, do you think we should be taking steps now to protect you know, countries like Nigeria? Yes. How? Well, I think we should be working with um, Nigerian public health uh, authorities, uh, and I think we should be discussing what 
what's going on inside the country. Now, one of the things we really can help with, because it's one of those areas where we've got a very strong lead, is in uh, genomic sequencing. So we could already just see what's coming in, making sure that we're helping out uh, in uh, with the Nigerian authorities or, you know, with the authorities in many other countries, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm not picking on Nigeria, but, you know, with countries, you know, all across, uh, all across the Commonwealth, indeed, even further afield than that, we should be looking to see what we can help with. Because, of course, should a variant arise in any country, then it could easily uh, come back to the UK, as we know, the Brazilian variant had an impact on us here, the Kentish variant has had an impact on others uh, outside the UK. You know, this is not a, a virus that recognises boundaries, and we need to support each other. Yeah, uh, Rachel, the Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi has come in for some intense criticism uh, over his handling of this crisis, including for holding huge rallies as the pandemic raged on. But Boris Johnson was due to meet him this week, which Tom was going to talk about on the podcast, but that had to be cancelled. Um, but he's clearly prioritising that relationship with India. Does does the Prime Minister need to be a bit careful there? Well, I think sort of Modi's mishandling of the pandemic is sort of quite well known you know as you say like allowing gatherings to continue allowing elections to continue but it's also what i think is particularly troubling is kind of the way that his government's been like really repressive towards any critics and people who sort of speak out about the severity of the crisis uh, to take like one example today um that there's a there's a man who is trying to find oxygen for his dying grandfather in like his grandfather's final hours and he'd um put an appeal out on twitter not even mentioning covid um and he's been arrested and faces jail um for, um, for even speaking about it because he's with intent to cause fear they say the tweet was with intent to cause fear or alarm and i think that's just you know I don't know how much Boris Johnson wants to, to sidle up to a regime that treats its citizens that way. And, and if he's going to, I think he sort of really should speak out about those kinds of things, that kind of behaviour. Yeah, Tom, what do you make of that? You know, there appears to be a lot of reputation management going on from the Indi Indian government and, and it's being done in quite a repressive way. Do you think we need to address that and speak out? Well, I think right now what we need to do is try and help uh, 1.3 billion people who are facing one of the worst public health emergencies the world has ever seen and which could have a direct uh, impact on many communities in the UK, in fact every community in the UK. So I have to say that's where I'm focused. Now I hear what Rachel's saying about various different forms of control and uh, it won't surprise you to hear that I'm uh, not in favour of uh, repression of the free press, although I probably will be in a few minutes time when you ask your next question. But the, uh, <laughs> the reality is that we, uh, you know, we have to currently work with the Indian government uh, to make sure that we help as many people as possible. And that's where I think we should be focused. Working with the Indian government and working with the Indian people, though, and I mean... Absolutely, Rachel. I mean, you've got, you've got to work with both, right? And and uh, as we all know, by the way, the Indian government is not a single entity anyway. Uh, there are many different states. They are governed by many different parties. They are organised in various different ways. And, you know, it is, to put it mildly, a very, very diverse country. <laughs> It's interesting, isn't it, that um, the Prime Minister um, was going to meet Narendra Modi. Um, I was due to be there in Delhi this week. And it's fascinating that what they've done is they've tried to resurrect it, uh, hold on to some kind of virtual summit. I think we're told by number 10 today that it's going to be held shortly, maybe as early as next week. Uh, so what would you like to see Boris Johnson say to Modi, Tom? Well, look, I think there's a there's a whole series of things you can build on. Um, you know, we published a report on the relationship with India in the Foreign Affairs Committee. I think no, I'm going to get the date wrong, but I think it was 2018, might have been 2019, 
um, in which we speak about building on the living bridge, because the reality is that our, our two countries have very symbiotic interests. You know, we are very, very capital rich, but actually we have a, an, an older population. They are proportionately, uh, they have less capital, but they have a very young, much younger population. And the, and the combination of the two, I think, should see British investment into startup India, uh, re, you know, generating returns for both in terms of, you know, generating opportunity, enterprise and innovation in India and economic returns and, yes, innovative technology and so on for the UK. So I, I think there's a, there's a very strong bond that we could have and the various things that I'd like to see. Look, I'd like to see the visa regime brought into line with other countries like China, for example. It's somewhat bizarre that China, Chinese citizens pay less for a visa to the UK than Indian citizens. It's also... Um, given that India is one of the most technologically uh, aligned countries in terms of citizenship identity, it seems odd that they have a very, very long waiting list for a visa. You know, they can prove their identities very easily um, because of their uh, the, the different ways in which identity is proven in, in India. Uh, and so I, I would like to see a much, much uh, simpler visa application process. And, and, and I think we could see a, a real booming of the opportunities between us. But of course, I'd also like to see in reverse, I'd like to see an opening up of the Indian service sector. And that's much more done at state level. But it, it would be something that I think would be great for, for the UK. So I think there's a I think there's a natural partnership we could have, but it's uh, going to be a tough conversation as these conversations are. And I just hope that the Prime Minister, you know, will will do what he said he's going to do and 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 deliver a fantastic trade deal for us and for the Indian people. Do you think that tough conversation has to include human rights issues as well? Should should the PM be be raising these in his discussions with Modi? I was I was working on a piece before the visit was cancelled, talking to various groups and people who were saying that you know they would very much like um, the prime minister to raise with Modi things like the crackdown on on the farmers' protests and, and other issues. What do you make of that? Right. I mean, look, there are conversations that you've got to have, um, and. Uh, uh, you know, there are conversations you've got to have face to face with somebody, you know, with, with somebody in places like that, because these aren't just issues that only affect uh, the Indian government or the Indian people. They do also affect, as you know very well, Arj, they affect communities here in the UK, uh, you know, matters like Kashmir and the Indian farmers protests and indeed uh, other other things, including Naxalite issues. You know, these things come up in surgeries in the UK to MPs in the UK. So these are these are not entirely foreign, but but at the same time, you know, I think these are these are matters that can be raised in a way that is uh, supportive of India's uh, sovereignty and doesn't sort of attempt to sort of look backwards, but actually instead sort of looks uh, at ways in which we can be supportive. Because I think the the Indian government is trying um, to do uh, as much as possible the right thing in, across a very very difficult uh, country to govern. You know, it's huge and populous. Uh, and I think that the, uh, the the opportunities they offer uh, to many millions of people is really pretty extraordinary. Yeah, Tom, you, you mentioned China there. Uh, we found out this week that HMS Queen Elizabeth, the aircraft carrier, is heading to Japan and Korea on its first deployment. But I believe it's avoiding uh, the Taiwan Straits so as not to offend China. Is that right? What do you make of that? Yeah, I heard that. Uh, I had that last week. I have to say I was a little bit surprised. Um, I mean, freedom of navigation operations are pretty standard. Um, and uh, we do it to demonstrate you know, that we believe this to be international water and the Straits of Taiwan are international water, just as the English Channel is international water. You know, we don't we don't try and stop the Russian fleet going down the English Channel. 
uh, and uh, you know they're absolutely entitled to do it. I mean, we may watch them as they go puffing out their <laughs> dirty fuel, but um, you know it's sort of like a two-stroke. But you know they're allowed to do it, and um, uh, you know I, I think I'm sh- I'm pretty sure that uh, the Royal Navy will be uh, making sure that uh, our presence is felt out there too. But I'm very, very, very glad that we're going to Okinawa and we're going to be going to to, um, to South Korea as well. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing a couple of Japanese F-35s flying off the flat top of the Queen Elizabeth. I think that'll be a that'll be a good sign. Yeah. What What's the wider kind of um, aim? Do you think of of going there first? Obviously, we're trying to pivot towards Tilt. Asia Tilt. and growth Tilt. markets. Tilt. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> it's the same thing, but not quite as radical. I think what we're trying to do is to demonstrate um, that we, uh, you know, have a very strong international presence. You know, this is part of the Global Britain message, but it's also about uh, reminding uh, our allies that we're there for them. You know, our relationship to Japan, for example, is extremely important, and not just for commercial reasons. It's it's hugely important for strategic reasons as well. I personally, I would like to see Japan joining the Five Eyes community. South Korea, in many ways, already gets a lot of benefits from the Five Eyes community anyway, because of the very large US military presence in South Korea. But, you know, but to see Japan join would be fantastic. And uh, to remind people that there is a, uh, a benefit um, to uh, cooperation, you know, we, we see French ships out there, we see German ships out there, quite rightly. And, and it'll be good to see British ships too. Very good. Well, back at home, Boris Johnson has endured one of his toughest weeks in office. And you could say the Prime Minister brought it on himself. Angered about leaks of his private texts, Johnson last week called newspaper editors to blame his former advisor, Dominic Cummings. But Cummings being Cummings, he responded by publicly attacking the PM in a blog post, leading to days of questions about whether Johnson said he'd rather see bodies pile high than order another COVID lockdown, an allegation the PM denies. But the story that looks set to run and run is on who paid for the refurbishment of Johnson's Downing Street flat. The PM is still refusing to answer basic questions on the affair, and the Electoral Commission has now launched a formal investigation as it believes an offence may have been committed. Keir Starmer can't believe his luck. Let's hear him at PMQs. The Prime Minister will be aware that he's required to declare any benefits that relate to his political activities, including loans or credit arrangements, within 28 days. 28 days, Prime Minister, yes. He will also know that any donation must be recorded in the register of ministers' interests and that under the law, any donation of over £500 to a political party must be registered and declared. So the rules are very clear. The Electoral Commission now think that there are reasonable grounds to suspect that an offence or offences may have occurred. That's incredibly serious. Can the Prime Minister tell the House, does he believe that any rules or laws have been broken in relation to the refurbishment of the Prime Minister's flat? Prime Minister. No, I don't, Mr Speaker. What, what, I, what, I, what, I, what I believe has been strained to breaking point is the credulity of the public. Uh, he has half an hour every week uh, to put serious and sensible questions to me about the state of the pandemic, about the vaccine rollout, about what we're doing to support our, our NHS, about what we're doing to fight crime, about what we're doing to bounce back from this uh, pandemic, about the economic recovery, about jobs for the people of this country. And he goes on and on, Mr Speaker, about wallpaper when, as I've told him umpteen times now, I paid for it. Uh, Paul, in response to that 
from Starmer may just sleaze that jibe. Boris Johnson got angrier than probably we've seen him in public before. Why do you think that is? I think um, the Prime Minister basically allowed Keir Starmer to get under his skin. And it's the first time I think I've seen that happen. Normally, uh, the PM can bat it off, you know, Islington lawyer, blah, blah. Um, and he... he affects a sort of you know lofty disdain and it served him well let's be honest the captain hindsight jab jibe has has really worked uh, and labor know it's worked uh that's why they came up with this phrase major sleaze it to me it was interesting because it showed that starmer is learning the political game he's not just about prosecutor uh starmer it's about politician starmer and i think that's why the pm was riled because he managed to land some political punches uh, whether whether or not you know it it has any lasting impact, I'm not sure. But to my mind, I've always said this, you know, and I made this point last night that it's not necessarily immorality that will do for Johnson; it's incompetence. And you know, at some point, um, it'd be quite interesting to see whether um, Labour say or Starmer says, for example, well, you've you've he's had a promotion, Mr. Speaker. He's gone from major sleaze to general sambles. You know, if you can call him General Shambles, uh, whether it's A-level fiascos or whether it's anything else that directly affects people's lives, then I think he's really on a sticky wicket. But um, this week, it, it, it was quite telling. Anyone who knows Boris Johnson, who's seen him lose his temper, and I, I've seen him lose his temper privately, you know, that's what he's like. Um, it, there is that side to Boris Johnson. I mean, that's a side to that to everybody. But in his case, it comes as a shock because he's so, so full of bonhomie that most people think, oh, could he ever really be like that? And I think that's why it was a mistake to, to show that side of himself publicly. Um, and I know Labour were certainly pleased. Tom, do you have a kind of, because uh, you were in the military, do you have a you know a nickname, or did you have a nickname like Captain Hindsight or Major Sleaze, a, a rank and a... Well, you'll be hardly surprised to hear that uh, with the first name Tom, and when I was a major, everything I had had ground control two written on top of it. <laughs> So, um, you know, that was it's not it's not great, great surprise. Um, no, I don't, I don't think I mean, I've, I had many other nicknames, but they were they weren't repeatable on radio. <laughs> Very well. It is. Is it a family show? I don't know. Let's say it is. Um, but Tom, do you, do you think that much of the Tory defence of, of what's been going on over the last week is that the public don't care and that Labour and the media are asking the wrong questions and they should focus on something else? Do you agree? Well, I think it's certainly true that people are, by and large, interested, much more interested in their own lives and what you know politicians are doing for them than they are on these sort of things. Uh, so I think that you know most people are, I think like most of us are interested in what's going to happen, you know, to us today, tomorrow, and the day after. What's going to, you know, what, what are the opportunities for our kids? What are the opportunities for our fa- friends and family? And that's you know that's what most people focus on. So I think that's that is probably true. Yeah. And- do you believe Johnson's telling the whole truth on on the, his past his comments during the pandemic last year and also the flat? Well, you know, I mean, I think we've got to take the prime minister at his word. I mean, we all know what he's like. He's been he hasn't changed in 25, 30 years, you know, uh, and we all know that uh, that you know, none, none of this is a surprise. What do you mean by that? I mean, I mean, we've all known who Prime Minister Johnson is for the last 25, 30 years. None of this is a surprise. And I think we should take the Prime Minister at his word. Been like what? So what was that, Rachel? I said, been like what? Been like what for 25 years? I don't know what you mean. 
Well, he's been he's been somebody who expresses himself in in a way that uh, Paul has described with bonhomie and 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 with a certain lightness, and and that's what we're seeing. And the interesting question for me is the fact that normally you could sort of say this is all a bit of you know political uh, brouhaha and the usual uh, skirmishes the skirmishes between parties. But what was different this week was the Electoral Commission saying and this is the UK's watchdog saying there are reasonable grounds to suspect an offence or offences may have occurred. I mean, were you quite shocked by that, Tom? Well, I have to say, I have no idea what they're referring to. So I, I can't say whether I'm, you know, I, I can't express any view on it, really. Um, I mean, this is an organisation that tried to bring a prosecution against uh, Craig McKinley in, in South Thanet and has uh, really uh, not always covered itself in glory. So, you know, it is it is a certain challenge. But I hope very much that if they're making statements like that, that they will stand them up quickly. Yeah. Um, do you think actually the focus may not be on the Prime Minister and it might actually end up being on CCHQ, on the Tory party, that actually that they might have um, let the Prime Minister down? Is that, is that what you're hearing? Um, some MPs believe that, that that might be the problem here because the Electoral Commission so far haven't asked Prime Minister, any questions, but they've asked CCHQ lots of questions. Well, that's not what I'm hearing. Um, but then uh, I'm not hearing much about it because I'm not asking much about it at the moment. I'm just waiting for the Electoral Commission to bring forward what they think uh, they, they have. Yeah, the Electoral Co Commission took a couple of years to investigate the um, Tory battle bus allegations that ended in that Craig McKinley case, as you said, Tom. Would you like to see something happen a lot, lot sooner? And, you know, what what you think, weeks, months, days? I'm not in charge of this. I mean, the Electoral Commission is an independent organisation and, and they'll have to do what they have to do. But um, if they're going to drag it out, then um, it will begin to look like they're playing politics with it. And that would be a great shame because what we need to have is independent regulators who are not only independent, but seem to be independent. And so if they've got evidence, fine, bring it forward, publish. And, and if you don't, drop it. Do you think there is a bit of that? Because there was this threat from Downing Street or, or the Conservatives to possibly abolish the Electoral Commission last year. I think it was last year. I'm afraid I did. Do you think this might be a bit of payback? I really hope not. That would uh, that would reflect very badly on those involved if it were. No, of course. Um, and are you worried this might affect local election results or do you think it's not going to? Well, I hope, I, I mean, I hope in local elections, people are going to be focused on what uh, borough districts and county councillors can deliver for, for all of us. You know, I mean, I'm knocking on doors all, all over West Kent and I'm supporting uh, the fantastic Sean Bailey in London and the brilliant Andy Street in Birmingham. I haven't quite made it as far north as uh, as uh, Teesside or, or indeed Hartlepool, but, um, you know, we've got some fantastic candidates standing for some really important jobs. Uh, and so I, I hope that we'll be supporting them and making sure that we make the difference between you know, what they're offering and what, you know, other parties are offering or indeed other independents are offering in places like, uh, you know, some places where some of the, half the party seems to have been dismissed for anti-Semitism. So, you know, there's a whole series of sort of stories going on as well. And Tom, you're right. I mean, all parties are being affected by this. I mean, you know, Liverpool Labour has certainly got a lot of its own problems with a, a police investigation going on right there. And um, as someone who's worked in the military, where standards and public service and duty are all really, really important values. And you coming into politics, what's your view on standards in public life in, in, in the political realm as opposed to in the military realm? My initial impression, and, and it still applies actually, I think, is, is 
most people, and I don't know whether I mean 70 or 90%, but most people are trying to do the right thing. Most people have integrity. Most people are genuinely trying to make a difference for their community, whether they're doing it at national or at local level. Most people are actually working hard and, and, and really trying to help. There are always a few, you know, there are always a few who think that integrity is, you know, a place in China. And it just, it sometimes feels that, you know, what we need to do is, is, is remind people that this isn't about, you know, prosecutions or, um, you know, public shaming. It's about personal ethos and it's about uh, keeping communities together. Can I just chime in and ask, um, I know you were saying about the Electoral Commission's kind of got to be seen to be independent as well as as well as be independent. Um, I think sort of some of the, the same kind of thinking could be applied to like to, to government. It's kind of got to be seen to have integrity as well as have integrity. And I think I, I don't know whether you kind of thought it was a bit unhealthy for uh, Matt Hancock to just stop ask, stop stop answering any questions on this whatsoever in yesterday's press conference. I mean, I know you I know you might say that sort of a lot of people will just care about some of the issues that affect them. But I think I think some people do care about it. And it's kind of not a good thing for the government to start telling people what they should care about. Well, I I, I don't that's not the way I saw it. And what Matt was doing yesterday. I mean, there, there comes a point in a press conference where you can't answer the same question constantly. Otherwise, nobody gets onto anything else that they want to talk about. So it's not, you know, it, it's difficult to manage those press conferences, as you know, Rachel, you can't you can't simply have the same question uh, 50 times over, you know, over the space of an hour, because then you... He blanked all of them. He blanked all of them. Well, he, he answered as he chose to answer. Rachel, I just want to ask you just to, just to shift the focus here a bit. Um, as this crisis for the PM helped Labour at what, what's been a quite a tricky time, and do you think Starmer's right to focus on Sleaze as much as he has, you know, this close to the local elections, which are going to be quite big for him? And I think I think it's sort of for the Labour Party itself, sort of this issue is kind of a bit of a, a, a sweet spot for them. I, I guess it means that they don't have to talk about Brexit, which is <laughs> which probably feels feels good for them. I also think um, that it kind of takes it takes some of the heat away from Keir Starmer, who, as you say, was kind of having a bit of a, of a rocky time there for, for a while. But I also think um, my my own barometer for um, the, the voters that Labour wants to target is, is my mum's partner, Dennis. He's kind of um, 70 years old, former manager of a steelworks, um, voted leave um, and is a, a red wall voter. Um, and, and he brought the issue up to me. Um, without me even asking to asking about it, so I think in those areas that Labour needs to win back, I think it's sort of it is getting some cut through. So I think he probably is is right to focus on it. But I think, you know, I think as you sort of said earlier, he probably can't believe his luck. You know, all, a lot of the a lot of these allegations are coming around because of Dominic Cummins, not because not not always because Labour's pushing that hard of it, hard at it. I think it's going to be fascinating the local elections because I think. Labour have done such a good job at managing expectations that if they do, as I expect, get several hundred council gains in council seats, which they should do from the dire performance of 2019, don't forget how low they were. They're in the 20 percent under Corbyn in, in 2017. Sorry. Um, and, you know, that was just before Corbyn surprised everyone in the general election. So. Um, you know, they they ought to be getting quite a few more council seats just on, on the back of that change. It'll, yeah, they're only on 30 odd, 35 percent at the moment. But that's a lot more than 28 percent. And 
it seems to me as though Labour, they've thrown everything at the sleeves charge because they think that actually uh, they know, they're quite confident they're going to get some of those gains. And they're going to say, oh, well, those gains are down to sleeves when they may well just be down to the cycle. Um, so I don't know. Um, that might be a bit shrewder politics in, in the leader's office of, of Labour Party. I'm not sure. that, But we shouldn't forget Boris Johnson is a formidable politician. It's worth, I mean, it's so easy to forget this, um, that, you know, you didn't win an eight-seat majority by a fluke. He won it because he was clear and he was consistent. And to be honest, he's now got the extra huge benefit of this vaccine rollout, which is really all people care about. And it's, yeah, it sounds like an excuse for Labour. Oh, it's because of the vaccine bounce that we're behind in the polls. But actually, I think it's really, really valid. And most people, all they're focused on is when can I get out of lockdown? When can I do X? When can I do Y? That's the only thing they care about. People are absolutely exuberant about getting their haircut yeah. <laughs> and being able to go and see their family. Absolutely. Yeah. It's so true. And once that that's flushed through the system, then it, life gets interesting, I think, because don't forget before the vaccine rollout last year, as I mentioned earlier, you know, competence really matters. The A-level fiasco, the free school meals messaging, you know, that's when the Prime Minister went down in the polls and that's when Labour went up in the polls. Um, and I think and certainly Starmer's office will be hoping that a bit more quotes return to normal post-vaccination. Um, we'll see whether or not in the summer that does happen. Um, you know, governments ought to be behind in the polls. It's a natural swim of things. Let's, let's not forget, uh, you know, they will make mistakes. They're in office um, and they don't expect to be ahead in the polls normally. They, they expect to be behind. So I think the next few months will be interesting, certainly given that the pressure Starmer has been under from his own side. Yeah, Tom, just the last one on this. I mean, this is a bit awkward. You've been, we've been a bit awkward here, haven't we, talking about this with you? You, you, you obviously feel awkward about it, answering questions about it. It, 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 it didn't have to be like this, though, did it, Tom? We, we don't actually we need to be having these questions because Boris Johnson could just come out and tell us who paid for the flat, and he didn't need to ring newspaper editors last week, and he could wrestle control back of the news agenda quite easily, I think. Um, are you, what's the question? Are you frustrated with how the last few days have gone? I'm so close to these local elections. Uh, look, I, I've been speaking to a lot of candidates who would wish that the focus was on what they were trying to achieve for their communities. Of course they do. Um, uh, and I sympathise with them because, you know, there's a lot of people who've worked extremely hard for four years who are trying to explain uh, to, to, to friends and neighbours exactly uh, what they're going to do over the next four. And, and that's what really matters. You know, when when uh, Michael Payne and Richard Long, there you go, two fantastic candidates standing for the uh, county division of Tunbridge in uh, on Kent County Council, uh, go to the uh, go to the polls on Thursday. They're going to be standing on their record of fixing potholes and keeping schools going in some of the worst, uh, you know, worst public health emergency that this country has known. And so I know that that's what they'll want people to focus on. And, and I hope very much that we, we can get to, you know, what actually matters day to day for most of us, which is, uh, you know, whether Kent County Council's buses are <laughs> actually delivering uh, school kids to the, to, to, the, to the school door at the right time. Nice tilt, Tom, and shout out to our Tunbridge Wells listeners. Tumbridge, Tumbridge, <laughs> Tumbridge, sorry, come on. T sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> I, anything south of London, I struggle with being from Leeds. Oh, mate, I'm hurt. <laughs> I'm hurt. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's time for the quiz. Uh, this week's is all on Downing Street flat refurbs. Ooh, uh, okay. So just shout the answer if you know it. 
<laughs> Question number one. How did Boris Johnson's fiance Carrie Simmons, describe the flat above number 11 as it was left by Theresa May? Oh, got no idea. Pokey? Chintzy. <laughs> no, you're going to kick yourself when I tell you the answer to this. It's, it's been in the agenda for the last two days. It's not John Lewis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's too, too, yeah. too much like John Lewis, yeah. John Lewis furniture nightmare is the right, widely right. reported quote. I'll give you a point for that, Tom. Go on. Don't give Tom uh, one. <laughs> Paul, sorry, Paul. Oh. I'll give you a point, Paul. <laughs> oh, I can see that little pot stirring there. <laughs> Question number two. We're, we're, we're sharing it out here. Tony and Cherie Blair made extensive renovations to the number 11 flat. But what, what was particularly special about the exercise room that they installed? Did they use Osborne and Little wallpaper? <laughs> <laughs> they might have done, but that's not the answer. Well, in fact, they definitely didn't for the exercise room. I can tell you that. That's a clue. Did they have a full length mirror? Yeah, I'll give you the answer. I'll give you the uh, point there, Paul. It was a mirrored room. Yeah, dodgy. <laughs> Jesus, rats. Eyebrows are being raised for our listeners. Um, final question. David Cameron was once accused of being out of touch for not knowing the price of a value loaf of bread. What was his excuse? Because he made bread in a bread maker. Yes, well done, Paul. Clean sweet, three out of three. I remember it well. It was yeah. a great moment. He yeah. had a Panasonic bread maker, which he filled with speciality Cotswold crunch flour. Think, to be fair, at least he was being authentically Cameroon about that. You know, I mean, that's exactly yeah. the right answer if you're David Cameron. It would have been a bit absurd <laughs> if he sort of said, oh, yeah, I buy my 47p loaf from Aldi every week. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> and let's not forget, didn't do him any harm in 2015, all that stuff. So, you know, again, easily forgotten. Absolutely. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to my guests for joining me and make sure you subscribe to Commons People on all the usual channels. And please be sure to leave a review and get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. We'll just leave you with hairstylist Nikki Clark delivering his verdict on Tony Blair's flowing post-lockdown locks. The real problem with Tony Blair is, is that he doesn't have that much at the front. So he's kind of, he's all forehead, really. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.